0: Tim Hudak is here, <laughs> okay. former leader of the Ontario Conservatives, now with the Ontario Real Estate Association. Good morning, sir. Good morning, John Moore. Okay, so a couple of stories that are totally in your wheelhouse today. First of all, municipalities apparently are preparing to rebel against the province's housing plan. Uh, their big issue is that the province is prepared to waive some development fees. And here's my big question for you. I don't since when do we have to incentivize somebody to build it's enormously profitable so why do we have to create even more incentive to do something people are already doing
1: when you look at all the fees that are charged, including development charges, um, on a home, John, it's up to 22% of a home's price. So in the GTA, for example, that's $190,000 that the homeowner will end up paying before even the first spade of soil is taken out for a condo, $123,000. Some of these development charges are up 900% in the last 20 years. It has become the crack cocaine of municipal financing. They're addicted to it. They raise it. And who pays the price? Well, it's that young family who can't get a home they can afford. It's the uh, black community, indigenous community, new Canadians. These are the groups that are impacted by these outrageous costs imposed on the backs of housing. So, look, the good news here is that there are solutions to actually get more homes built that average people can afford. Intensifying near transit stations, for example. Converting underutilized commercial or government property into housing. Allowing more units on a parcel of land and getting these charges down. The bad news is it takes a government with some courage to face this down. There will be pushed back, of course. I think it will cause a reckoning of how municipalities are financed in the first place. That's a good debate to be had. But please, don't keep burying young homeowners trying to get the keys to a great place to call home with higher
0: and higher fees every year. Okay, but there's more than just building a tower. I mean, it has to be serviced. The roads have to be maintained. Things have to be done. Um, and in some cases, you know, not necessarily in Toronto, but in some areas, Areas they have to build a brand new sewer system or a brand new waterworks in order to accommodate. So it's, you know, there is a, an impact on the community for a developer coming in and building stuff. <laughs> So let's solve
1: those issues and not put the entire cost on the backs of young homeowners trying to get their first home. You know, you know, John. Whether it's a a modest uh, new home or it's a luxury home, you end up paying the same rate for development charges. That's not fair. That's why this bill rightly says, okay, you can keep development charges for the wealthier homes, but it's going to be affordable housing, not-for-profit housing, you know, entry-level first-time buyer housing, or apartments with three units. Right? Three bedrooms in an apartment. They're going to get discounts. I think. that is the right thing to do. Is it fair to say to these young homeowners that you've got to pay for uh, services that uh, benefit the broader municipality? I don't think that is appropriate. Here's an example of what you can do. Instead of taking the whole cost of water and wastewater up front and put it all in the back of new home buyers, make it a utility like we have for hydro, and you pay that down over time. The province can bring grants to the table matched by the federal government to aid municipalities in this transition. Municipalities, John, are sitting on a mountain of cash from over-reliance to development charge to the tune of like $7 billion. You can whittle that down. Surely to goodness, a combination of solutions like that is better than pushing housing prices out of the
0: reach of young families trying to get in the market. Uh, What about the growing din about how this Greenbelt property swap is actually going to end up benefiting friends of the progressive conservatives? And I'm very mindful that developers like to spread the money around. So the liberals have been benefiting over the years from largesse. But it it does seem, let's just say, suspicious. Well, I got a solution for
1: this. Look, my... um my work on the Greenbelt goes back to 2005. It just uh, happened to be the critic for municipal affairs and housing under PC leader John Tory when this legislation was passed. And what happened in 2005 was there was not an analysis of land to say this is environmentally sensitive and it should put in the Greenbelt, and this land is not, and it can be developed. A series of arbitrary lines were drawn no matter what the value of that land. By way of example, in my riding in Grimsby, there's a piece of property that was already serviced, had water and sewer under the ground that was arbitrarily green belted. So doesn't it make sense to take out property that is not environmentally sensitive, that is right next to existing development to help build the 50,000 of the homes we're going to need, property like that, and in return, you put more acres that are actually environmentally sensitive into the greenbelt. So you have a swap where you can develop housing on non-significant land and you improve the quality and quantity of the green belt. That seems like a good deal to me and to taxpayers and to people who care about expanding the Green Belt. The catch is, yeah, there's going to be political follow-up. People are going to say, well, that property was released because you knew this guy or this person made this type of donation. The solution here is you need an arm's-length transparent process that will look at criteria, report to the public on why land was, was taken out, what land was put in to replace it. And that way you can get away from these sort of odious accusations and any temptation by developers by putting an arm's length and transparent on why land happened At the end of the day you get more homes built and improve the quality of the greenbelt that's a good deal to
0: me uh, our foreign affairs minister is bringing in the Russian ambassador to reprimand him and whoever was responsible for a bunch of anti-LGBTQ2S uh, plus tweets. I can't quite figure out what's going on here. And frankly, I'm beginning to think that it's time to tell the Russians to pack up and get out. That maybe to that point. <laughs> and, and this, this among
1: many other causes for that. This is a, a Russian culture war that has now erupted on Canadian soil. Right. I mean, this is something that Putin has been driving Putin's had an anti-gay agenda for some time. He promotes Russian nationalism. He's even said one of the threats of Ukraine invading was John terrifyingly they have gay soldiers right who may take over Russia and change the well, values. They're of certainly
0: that. teaching the Russians a good lesson.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. So, so I, I think this is a good move by Melanie Jolie. I think this is uh, very appropriate to push back. It's part of our war uh, with uh, with Russia. You know, not, not literally, but in the communications space. I I remember John Baird and Stephen Harper took a very strong role in challenging countries to have a a greater tolerance to support rights based on your sexuality and religious freedom. I'm happy to see the Trudeau government, you know, carrying
0: on that tradition, hopefully with China for sure, and pushing back on Putin and Russia. Good for her. So uh, Brampton seems to be becoming the municipality that likes banning stuff. Uh, Yesterday they banned fireworks and uh, lawn signs, electoral lawn signs on private property. I'm kind of in for this.
1: Yare, eh? I, I, okay. Here, here, I'm on the opposite side. First, there's the no fun league here, right? Yeah, I think you can restrict fireworks, but to ban them altogether all the time, even in the major metropolis of Toronto, you at least get a chance to light them up on Victoria Day in in Canada. Hey, I yeah, think, and then fire them the...
0: at police officers.
1: <laughs> well, I do, do you call for an all-out ban on that Canadian tradition, or do you actually crack down heavily on those that that abuse it? I'm of of that school. But look on on the lawn signs. Look, this is a really good move if you're an incumbent. If you wanna protect your office, you wanna fend off potential challengers so they can't get name recognition or show they're challenging you, very effective way if you're already in office to keep others out of office. I suspect that is actually the motivation. Yeah, it's visual clutter, I suppose, but it's a limited time. It happens in municipalities every four years. And if people are abusing the signs, they're not taking them down, they're not following the rules, then how about this? Make sure that there's a significant deposit when you run for office and you start drawing that down or issuing fines. Go after the abusers, Don, but don't take away, number one, my right to help endorse a candidate that I support, and secondly, to give challengers a chance to take down incumbents It's already heavily weighted at municipal level towards incumbents today. Do you still have any of your old election signs? I do! Yeah, uh, yeah probably <laughs> a little too much clutter in the, in the basement, I suppose, from those old souvenirs. Um, that's the other thing, too. Any good candidate, I know it's not going to always be the case. And Any good candidate goes around and collects her or his lawn signs. You're going to use them again. Next campaign comes around. So the notion that it's environmentally harmful, well, there are ways of addressing that, too, as opposed to an all-out ban on my right to support a candidate. Thank you, sir. Good to have you. Have a great day.